Hi, everyone. This is Alex Epstein, host of Power Hour, and this week we have another Best of Power Hour. This week's episode is mostly about the topic of energy poverty, which is always a relevant topic, at least always will be, until we have low-cost, reliable energy in all of its different needed forms from electricity to mobility around the world. And on this episode, our guest is Jude Clemente, who writes a lot of good stuff on the topic of energy poverty. And so we talk about this as a humanitarian problem, both in the U.S. and abroad, and then also what kinds of policies will alleviate energy poverty and more broadly lead to greater prosperity. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. If you haven't already, make sure to uh, pre-order the new Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Just go to Amazon.com and search for the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels revised. Also, if you're not on my mailing list and you want weekly updates as well as access to our free Energy Clarity course, sign up at AlexEpsteinList.com. Okay, enjoy this week's episode, and I will speak to you next week. Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today on Power Hour, we're going to discuss energy poverty. This is an issue that's come up many different times over different shows, but I think there's a lot more depth to it. So we've got a guest, Jude Clemente, whom I found out about maybe a year ago, and he's written some really interesting stuff for Forbes, writes a lot of really good stuff on Twitter. So I thought I'd bring him in to discuss that. Uh, and also the the topic that I've been thinking of a lot lately, which is America's energy opportunities. So what is our opportunity to really become the power plant of the world and improve our standard of living, improve the standard of living around the world, including uh, alleviating a lot of the energy poverty around the world? So those two topics, energy poverty and America's energy opportunities, we'll discuss with Jude Clemente on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Jude Clemente, principal at JTC Research Associates, LLC, contributor to Forbes.com, and uh, tweets a lot of interesting stuff at, at Jude Clemente. Jude, welcome to Power Hour. Hey, thanks for having me on, Alex. It's a pleasure to be on your program. Yeah, I've been following your work for a while, so it's it's good to have you here. So today I want to talk about what I call America's energy abundance opportunity. Uh, and I think we both agree that there's both a massive need for more energy around the world and also a massive uh, capacity of Americans using you know, our raw materials, our ingenuity uh, to create much of that energy and so to make ourselves prosperous and to make others prosperous. So I want to I talk about that. And I, what I think we'll do is we'll focus on the hydrocarbons, coal, oil, and gas, because I think that's where the most immediate opportunities uh, lie and, and where much of the, the attacks lie, or many of the attacks lie. Uh, so we're just going to run through the different uh, forms of energy, coal, oil, and gas, and we're just going to talk about the op opportunities, the obstacles, and then the, the policy solutions. So let's start out with with coal. What are, what are the biggest opportunities with coal in the United States? Well, as I see it, Alex, we have about a 265-year supply of coal. Um, we're, we're pretty much consuming about 1, million ton, 1 billion tons a year, so that you're looking at about 260 billion tons. And coal has been the basis of our electric power system since its inception in, eight, in the 1880s when uh, Thomas Edison installed Pearl Street in Manhattan, the power plant there. So the first power plant was ran on coal. So coal is, has been the basis of electricity. And you have to remember the importance of electricity is that it was, it was uh, deemed by the U.S. Academy of Engineering to be the, the electrification was deemed the greatest scientific achievement of the 20th century. So we have a massive amount of coal 
And you're seeing now a push against coal in the, the, uh, with environmental regulations. And there's an attack on coal, as you're saying, there's an attack on, on fossil fuels in general. And as I see it, the importance of coal is really something that doesn't go, um, that goes unnoticed. And it's the, the value of low cost electricity, low cost energy in general, is that it gives us more disposable income. And that is such an important health aspect. The, the, the Obama administration and the Obama EPA, they've brought health into this issue. And as far as I'm concerned, health is on the side of fossil fuels. This is something that you've talked, you talk about a lot in your work that in my work focuses on a low cost energy, affordable energy gives us more disposable income. So it gives us more money to spend on our health, whether that's taking a vacation, whether that's uh, getting a babysitter to go out to eat at night. Those type of things are basically immeasurable. And just as importantly, our GDP is a consumer-based GDP, meaning about 75% of our GDP is based on consumer spending. That You need disposable income to grow the economy. So what we're seeing now is a push for higher cost energy, less reliable energy, and that's going to erode our disposable income, which is going to make it where we can't grow our economy. So the amount of coal that we have just in reserves is 265-year uh, supply, somewhere around there, that's not even including the resource, which is actually much larger. The reserve is just what you can get today, given um, the current prices and technologies, which are always – the price is normally going up, and uh, technologies are always evolving. So that resource is becoming more accessible for, the, for these companies. So that's another thing. We probably have a four- or 500-year supply when you look at the reserves. So um, I, I think that's a key, a key aspect of coal. It's about energy security. Because uh, as President Obama has said, we're the Saudi Arabia of coal. Illinois alone, which where President Obama is from, is uh, the Saudi Arabia of coal. So we, we're actually more like the OPEC of, uh, of, uh, of coal, meaning we have as much energy in, uh, energy in our coal reserves as OPEC has in oil, somewhere around, uh, around that amount. So um, this is a resource that we have to be using because as, as I frequently talk about in my work, and I've seen you have too, coal is the fastest growing energy resource around the world for reasons. It's cheap, it's, it's affordable, and it is very reliable. It's, it's a baseload source that's there when you need it. And we saw this over um, when we had the polar vortex, where coal was 92% of the incremental electricity. It was available when we needed it most. Because you can store coal on site, other sources you can't store on site. And the renewables are non-dispatchable energy sources, meaning they're not they're they're more unavailable than they are available. So that that's where I see coal being being such a uh, such an important resource for the for the U.S. and the world. See, so you mentioned this issue of of reserves, and reserves are inventories, basically. Exactly how much you have on hand, but that is always almost always conflated with the amount in place, with the amount of raw material in place. Are there good data on the amount of raw material in place? Because I mean, even in, in my book, there's a, uh, I cite a study by one of the global coal organizations about how there's 3,000 years worth of ultimately recoverable. There are all these different distinctions, but even that isn't, that isn't the amount of raw material on the ground. That's sort of speculated how much technology will be able to do. It's like you have the equivalent of oil where I, in oil, or uh, as an example, I was just visiting a company called Pioneer Resources giving a speech there uh, about a week ago, and they work in what's called the Permian Basin. And that itself has, in terms of raw material, a trillion barrels of oil, which is the amount that we've used in the whole history of civilization yeah. now. And, and it, over time, technology gets better and better and better at recovering that. So do you have a sense of the, the amount of just raw coal hydrocarbon underground in the U.S.? Well, the, the company that does a lot of that, you know, the researchers, is, is the USGS, which is the United States Geological Survey. And my, my thinking is, considering that the, we know reserves are 265, I would put it closer to 400 or 500 uh, years when you look at the, the resource. But it's probably in the trillions of tons um, would, be, would be my guess. And you have to remember, these things are always changing. When you look at uh, the, the, the Bakken Reserve, which is the big oil play 
in North Dakota, which is the shale oil boom that we've had, that's been the focus in the Bakken there. The original estimate that the USGS had, which is the United States Geological Survey, which is the best guys in the world doing this, geologists, the original estimate that they had, but this came about 10, 15 years ago, and they also did an estimate in the 90s, that the, the Bakken held 100 million barrels of oil, okay? We are now seeing estimates that it held, that's total, that's all that's there. That's what they said, 150 million barrels of oil. We're now getting estimates from a company called Continental Resources, which has been the big player in the Bakken and others, that there's now 20 billion barrels. So even this, these things are always changing. So the, the more that we explore, the more that time passes, the more we realize how much is there. And the more, the more that we, we, we kind of research and we, we explore these areas, the more we know about them. So there's a lot of things that we don't know. Nobody was predicting this, this, uh, the shale boom that's happened for oil and gas. As eight years ago, the EIA, which is the main uh, information center for the, for the U.S. Department of Energy, wasn't even mentioning shale. Nobody was mentioned shale oil. Nobody was mentioned shale gas. Next thing you know, it's the biggest thing in the world. It's changing markets. So this idea that we're running out of any supply or any fossil fuel, which is what they were, the, the anti-fossil fuel movement was saying seven, eight years ago, it has been completely obliterated uh, from the shale boom. And we've always known that we've uh, had a ton of coal, four or 500 years worth. Um, and like I say, at least 260, that's proven. It's, it's much more than that when you look at the resource. Um, the, the, the idea that we would be limiting that in any, in any capacity is the exact opposite of the energy security that we need to be installing uh, as Russia and China are on, the, are on the march around the world looking for energy partners. China is in, is in uh, Venezuela. China is dealing with Iran. Russia is dealing with Iran. All these, all these other competitors are, are, are grouping together. And the idea that we're going to limit fossil fuels in any capacity, considering that they're 85% of our energy, is the exact opposite of what, what we should be doing. But to answer your question, ultimately, I would put it somewhere in 500, 400 years. Um, and probably the USGS would be the company uh, to look at that for, for the reserve or for the resource for coal. But again, it's always changing. So you, you, nobody really knows. Right. So let's talk about what. So there's the issue of, OK, so there's this opportunity or at least the spaces of an opportunity in terms of the amount of coal. There's this enormous amount of coal that we could get out of the ground. Now there's questions of what can we do with it? And of course, one thing we can do is we can supply low cost electricity to Americans. But another thing we could presumably do is, uh, is provide the, the raw material for low cost uh, electricity to people around the world, particularly if we have really good technologies to develop it efficiently and ways to ship it efficiently. What is the, what, what kind of potential do we have to become an energy leader through coal production and exportation? Well, I would say, I did a report on this a couple of years ago. I, these things, these things have changed. China was importing a bunch of coal the past couple of years. Their markets slowed down, so they're not as importing as much. Next thing you know, the anti-coal people are saying, well, China's getting off coal. Their, their economy slowed down. They still have 200 million people that live on $2 a day. They're still going to be growing at 7 or 8% a year. So ultimately, and a lot of what's happening in China is their coal reserves and resources is far from, their, uh, from the cities, which are on the, east, the southeastern side of the country where, where the, the population centers are. So they were looking for a bunch of coal last year and in the past couple of years because they have transfer, uh, transportation issues as well, getting coal to the cities. So I think that's a tremendous opportunity and if we, for, for companies here, that especially in the Powder River Basin area of Wyoming and Montana, which is where most of our coal production takes place, um, about 40% of it takes place in Wyoming rather. So I think there's a good chance to export it. From export coal from the western coast to China, more so even India, because India has low qual, very low quality coal. Low, low, uh, it has a lot of ash in it as well. So it's a little bit of a dirtier coal to get to uh, that that India has been using. And there's no question these com these countries are going to be relying on coal. They're coal based economies. So if if the companies that we have are willing to put out the capital to put out the uh, the efforts to export coal. Um, I think that's something we should be encouraging because when you still look around the world, Alex, 20% of humanity does not have electricity. 
which is the foundation of modern life, which is the, the key to everything. When you even look at Sub-Saharan Africa, there's 650 million people, no electricity. So the idea that we would limit coal exports when coal is the basis of our own electricity system, when coal is the basis of the world's electricity system, by far it's the greatest uh, source of electricity in the world. That's some, that is an, the anti-human approach that the, 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 uh, the Green Movement continually says the fossil fuels are, are about, is the anti-human, they're anti-development. That's pro-development is exporting coal because it, it's that important, especially for, for, for countries that are poor, they, they need a, a cheap electricity because they can't afford it and when you higher cost electricity. And when you look at the, uh, the developing world, they're falling into debt. That's another thing that people don't talk about. They're falling into debt by three, four hundred billion dollars a year. So the idea that, they, that we would force higher cost energy upon them, that's especially less reliable, is the, the, is, is the exact opposite of anti uh, is the exact opposite of anti uh, of development. It's anti-development. So I think it's a great opportunity. If companies are willing to, to, to engage in it, then that's something that we have to look at. We talk a lot about the lack of access to energy in the underdeveloped world, the stats about electricity, the even bigger stats about very low levels of energy access. One aspect of that, though, is what else is necessary to, you know, what, what are the limiting factors? What are the things that can be overcome in terms of overcoming that? Because I think there can be a mistake, and I've seen this in some companies' materials, that just act as if, well, if we just produce more coal, then the, the problem will be solved. And, but yet in a lot of these countries, there's just not the right political system. There's not the right infrastructure. There's all these obstacles that we've seen other countries overcome, at least substantially, like China and India. So I'm wondering what's what's the overall prescription for access to energy in these these countries? We know that that a huge part of it is coal, but what else is necessary that should be encouraged? Well, I think there needs to be a fundamental understanding that the the, the greatest, the richest, and healthiest countries in the world are built on fossil fuels. That's the first thing that people have to get over. They're built on fossil fuels for a reason. It's not a Coke conspiracy. It's not a Clemente and Epstein uh, conspiracy. The fact of the matter is fossil fuels won the race because they're cheaper. And I, like, I don't like to use the word cheap because it's, it just doesn't sound right. Maybe, I mean, I should say more, they're affordable and they're, they're more reliable than their competitors. That's why they supply 85% of the world's energy. So there has to be a fundamental understanding that they're not replaceable right now. And that's one of the greatest, the greatest things that the, the renewable energy side doesn't seem to understand is renewable energy, as I see it, is a supplement. It's not an alternative for fossil fuels. So that's the first thing that people have to understand is that there's really at current time for decades we're talking and the International Energy Agency has, has stressed this. There's no substitute for fossil fuels for decades down the road. And you could even argue the next uh, economy is going to be based on hydrogen or something we haven't seen. In many ways, fossil fuels discarded renewables. Renewable energy was the first sources of energy that was used. So we went from renewables, the, the Persians used them, and the, 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 the Egyptians and the Greeks, went from, from, um, we went from, from renewable energy to fossil fuels. And now people are saying we're going to go back to renewables. I, I see the next energy system as being something that we haven't seen before. And that, like I said, that's going to take decades to occur. But from a political perspective, as you mentioned, that is that is a challenge because there's a lot of corruption in these countries. I just I put up a graph the other day on Forbes, uh, this green energy fund that we're seeing, or green climate fund, I think it's called. Um, that we're gonna, the, the the developing countries want three hundred billion dollars from the Western world in the Washington time uh, to fight climate, whatever, whatever how vague that is. The Washington Times called it the greatest robbery since uh, Jesse James in, in, the, in the 1880s. And it's absolutely true. When you look at these, there, there's a ton of corruption in, that we have to deal with. And I, I'm not an expert in how to deal with that. I can promise you that because that, that is a, a big problem. But when you look at the developing countries, they're ranked, uh, China was ranked, I think, 85th. India's like 100 or somewhere like that uh, is out of 175 countries. The U.S. is about 17, and the lower the better. The European countries are like five, six, seven, stuff like that. So the lower the better. A lot of these countries are corrupt, and the oil companies have dealt with this 
Uh, it's called the resource curse, which is basically Africa has a ton of oil and gas, but it, it, and the companies come in and ultimately the people don't benefit from it. So I think the UN, that's something the UN could take up um, is somehow, some way, and even if you do it for renewable energy, when we give money for renewables, who knows where that's going to go? So that is a problem, uh, the corruption. Where, where, where would this money go if we, if we do supply energy to the, to the developing world, we do export as much energy as possible, we do give them money to develop, we do, you know, that's always been a problem for the, the developing agencies is how do we get around this corruption that is blocking development of these countries that need desperate development as soon as possible. But why is it seen as a charitable thing? I mean, if, if you look at China and India, it seems like they made, you know, they made certain decisions that led to more productivity, that unleashed the potential of people and that have made people more productive. And that's definitely, I think, the ideal way to uh, schematically to do it, even, even despite their own, you know, individual uh, shortcomings. So I, I, my question is, what, you know, what kinds of policies do we need to encourage? Because there is a certain narrative, and, and this is, I think this was present and present what the Pope was saying, which is just this narrative that, well, it's our duty to serve the poor, period. And there, part of that absolves people of responsibility for their own success. And it's not, you know, the, everyone used to be poor. The U.S. used to be poor. China was poor, still is in many ways. Uh, but, but, you know, the solution of poverty is productivity. And the question is, uh, is, what, what policies can we encourage some of these countries to adopt that will make them productive and make them able to use coal instead of some welfare scheme that's inevitably going to be uh, wrecked by their dictators anyway? Yeah, I think part of that is, like I say, just, just an understanding of what, what, of what the, world, the amount of energy that we, um, the world needs to develop because it, the de development is such a key problem that six billion people still live in undeveloped nations. And from a policy perspective, I think that's where your, your uh, the energy liberation plan really comes into play is to encourage the world to produce as much energy as possible in the safest possible way, the cleanest possible way. And it, believe it or not, China is actually winning the, uh, the, the clean coal race in many ways. They're installing some of the, the, the top ultra super critical and super critical plants in the world with, effic with efficiency of close to 50% when many of the US plants are only at 33%. So a lot of these countries are, uh, have already taken to, and, and India has the same thing, they have, it's called uh, the LLS program in India, which is a large substituting for small, meaning a lot of the, China and India are trying to retire some of their, their, their weaker, some of their less efficient coal plants. And, um, put in some of the more efficient ones that can use coal, that can use less coal, but produce more energy. So in, in China, it's, um, they, they have, I'm sorry, that's China that has the LLS program. In, in India, it's the, the ultra mega power plant projects is the same idea, is installing bigger, bigger projects, more efficient plants. And these are, th these are things from a policy perspective we have to be encouraging because the bottom line is India and China, regardless of what you hear in the, the media, are turning to coal. There's no question they're going to be using renewable energy. And renewable energy has a key play, a role to play, but it is not the baseload source that these countries are going to be using. It's not the main source. It's going to be a supplemental factor, just like it is in California, which has spent all this money on renewable energy. So we have to be encouraging the, cur the, the most efficient plants, because if we don't, it, these, these countries are going to use less efficient plants because they're cheaper in many ways. So even though they have these different programs to install the most efficient plants, some less efficient plants will, will be installed and will stay on board because of um, because it's cheaper. And you see this the problem in China is a lot of their their pollution problem is because they don't install the scrubbers, uh, the, the coal plant scrubbers in in Beijing and these different cities because they're too expensive to do so. So this whole idea of the World Bank not funding coal in India is the exact opposite of what we should be doing. We should be funding coal, the most efficient plants available, which are called ultra supercritical plants or even supercritical plants. Both China and India, which are the key incremental CO2 emitters uh, combined, they'll emit about 70% 70, 70 of the new CO2 emissions over the next 20, 30, 40 years. 
they have already shown they want to do this and we have to encourage the cleanest plant plants possible and the anti-coal approach that the uh, Obama administration has has adopted and basically this clean carbon plan is an anti-coal approach because it forces companies to install uh, carbon capture and storage which it's not quite ready yet for prime time so there's no doubt this is an anti-coal approach is, is if we're not leading we have to be leading in clean coal okay we have to be lead, we have to be leading that race and showing the world that coal is okay to use it's a it's a great resource to use we have to use it the most efficient way possible which which india and china have already shown they want to do they have national programs to install the, the best plants i guess but it seems like you're saying that we should somehow subsidize their clean coal well i'm not necessarily saying that i'm i'm saying Somehow, working with the world, the World Bank was the one that, that turned it down. Now, I don't know how much we're funding the World Bank, but basically, it's something from a policy perspective we have to to consider. And I can tell you this: we just committed three billion dollars for the Green Energy Fund, and I can assure you that's going to go up because uh, only about uh, eighty-five of the countries have submitted their plans. I saw India just submitted their their uh, carbon emission plan today. Um, that money would be more would be better spent for something like that for for clean coal absolutely so I think there is a there is a possibility to, to subsidize because we're subsidizing many things but I can understand why I think you might be going in this we have our own problems um, and that's one thing I do is American poverty uh, there's the numbers are, are, are sickening and sad in American poverty so why should we give money to other countries but I do think there is a there is a chance for us to subsidize to work with um, with these, uh, with NGOs and, and things like that, and, and, and World Bank, IMF, to get to to fund some of this, uh, this fund some to fund some of these projects because they're that important. Like I say, they will use less efficient coal, less efficient plants if we do not help out in some some capacity. Let's talk about oil and gas. So, what what is the potential there and let, let's start with you know the amount of the resource including you know the different measures like reserves and and in place because for a long time people had a sense that well we're in the u.s in particular we're running out of oil etc and people have a sense that it's changed but i don't think they have a clear idea of how much how much there is and what kind of potential there is yeah i saw actually a good estimate on this um it came from Rice University, which has has a very good research center down there. Uh, for the the oil resource has been estimated at about two two trillion barrels, and you had mentioned before we've used one trillion in the history of the world. I think it might even be less than that, but it's right around there. So we've there's about two trillion barrels. That's just what the Rice University has said for the oil resource. And like I say, these things are always changing. The OCS, which is the Outer Continental Shelf, is 85% of it is off, short, is off limits for exploration. So the resource, we don't even know how much really is there. Like I say, the, the best experts at Rice came up with two, with two trillion barrels. The, the reserves, which are, like I was saying, is we can just get today, given uh, the current technology, given current prices, is we're now closing in on 40 billion barrels. And at the end of World War II, we had 25 billion barrels. So we've gone up. And during that time, Alex, we've used about 185 billion barrels. So somehow we've gone from proven reserves since uh, FDR was in charge from 25 to President Obama now. We now have close to about 38 somewhere in there, depending on if you use BP or if you use well, CIA. Really, really, you know, 200 plus, right? Because we've already used the other stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, so nothing can be more proven so than what much. we actually used. What's that? Nothing is more proven than what we actually used. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But this is what you see, and you see the media jump on it. They, they just did. A, BP comes out with their statistical review every June, and the the, the the current reserves are now fifty three years for the world. So they're saying the world has fifty three years of oil left. It, it's utter garbage because. That's just that's all. We, Twenty years ago, we had fifty-three years or fifty-five years, whatever it is. So the that's called a reserves to production ratio, which is basically how much reserves you have divided by how much production you have. That gives you a year total. So the U.S. has had twelve a twelve-year supply of oil for like the past fifty years because a lot of these companies don't have an incentive to go 
to 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 reach beyond what they're going to need over the next couple of years, what they think the world's going to need, and a lot of the places are unexplored. So, to me, that's what they say, and President Obama has used this. Right? We have to get off oil and gas because we only have one point six percent or two percent of the world's oil and gas, which is totally nonsense because that's just looking at at the reserves, which which is available today, and we know for a fact that the oil uh, that we have proven has has has, is the highest it's ever been, and we, we keep using more and more. So we now have more oil than we've had in the history of the proven oil than we've ever had. And the thing to always remember is the technologies continue to improve, to continue to get cleaner and this and more efficient. And this is the, another huge problem with the renewable energy uh, industry is they this is a competition. In America, it's about competition where we open up, we say we want, we want to enhance sustainability. We want to reduce emissions. We want to grow our economy. We want to supply energy. Okay, all these energy sources should should be given uh, should be equal access, and it's a race to who, whoever can do it. We should open it up to, to everything. This was this was shown by Carnegie Mellon, their electricity center has says this all the thing. Make your all the time. Make your goal and let all the, the 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 energy technologies compete. So that's something that we have to be doing is allowing uh, competition and not blocking off different energy sources. And renewables are evolving. There's no doubt about that. Their technologies are evolving, but so are fossil fuel technologies are evolving. So we've seen this with the shale revolution, which no one project predicted, no one saw coming. Next thing you know, we have all this oil and gas. And I see now, you know, we were supposedly peaked in oil production in 1970. We're now, we now passed that for crude, closing in on 10 billion bar for 10 million barrels a day. So you never know what's, what tomorrow brings, which is why all these it should be a competition and, and that's why policies don't so dangerous in picking winners and losers because nobody can predict the future so once as we're producing more of this oil and you mentioned that a lot of it a lot of the potential production is off limits what are the what are the range of benefits that that we get and then that the customers get well, we've seen the lowering of price, which uh, uh, I'm seeing gas now at 240 or somewhere in there. Not in California, as you well know. Well, and I was in uh, <laughs> I was in Oklahoma the other day, and, and I was in Texas recently, and you know, then you're seeing 198. Oh, geez. Yeah, here you're seeing three dollars forty cents. Yeah, well, I think a lot of that comes from the idea that. It's going to be a low cost, low cost, but low cost can be a double-edged sword. A lot of these com these companies now are low pro low energy prices can be a double-edged sword in the fact that they can. A lot of these companies are laying off people because the prices are too low. So there has to be some sort of an equilibrium between uh, what's good for the customer, what's good for 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 the companies, and as prices rise, they can uh, produce more. So I would suggest that that's part of it too. You get more disposable income, as I was saying before, when prices are lower, more, more money spent on uh, the economy. You can go out to eat. You can go on a vacation when you have more disposable income because you saved the money on gasoline, that type of thing. But it, it, there, the oil industry, oil and gas industry is struggling with the lower prices, and I think that came a lot uh, – obviously comes from Saudi Arabia not shutting um, – not shutting down, uh, not lowering production. That's another thing that we need to worry about is dealing with OPEC. We've demonized OPEC, which I know T Boone has done, and I like T Boone a lot. He's a very smart guy, but I think he's made a we've made a mistake by demonizing OPEC as much as we have. It's a global market. It's a glo oil is an international market. It's not like natural gas, which is a regional market. So we have to we have to work with 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 each other. And you're seeing the demonization of of Russia. Uh, is another thing. Russia is the second, third largest producer in the world. It's the second largest fossil fuel producer after us. So we have to work with these with these countries to bet, and obviously for, that will benefit Americans to produce more. But I think a lot of it also comes from producing more oil. Is that there's no substitute for oil? There, we have about 255 million vehicles in this country, Alex. About 225,000 of them. Okay, let me say that again. 255 million oil-based vehicles. California alone has about 32 million and 255,000 plug-ins. So the idea that we're just going to run our cars on electricity is just, it's, it's too laughable to even respond to. Our entire transportation system, 95%, is based on oil. 
Oil has no substitute. That's why it has a low uh, price elasticity of demand, meaning when prices go up, people still use it. Prices go down, people still use more, of course. But when prices go up, you don't see that reduction in demand because there's no substitute for oil. That, that's, that's what the, another thing that people don't understand is when you look at renewable energy, wind and solar simply supply electricity. They have nothing to do with oil. And you will talk about, you'll see this with the renewable side, wind and solar is about um, energy security, energy security, energy security. They supply electricity and our electricity system is very energy insecure because it comes from natural gas. It comes from uh, coal. Very which energy secure, right? Energy, What's that? You said energy insecure. Did you mean energy secure? No, energy security. Our, our electricity system is very energy secure. The, our energy insecurity came from, it's been reduced, oil, because we had to export, we had to import so much. We don't import coal, and we import a little of natural gas from Canada, not exactly uh, an enemy. You know, they're our friend, to say the least. So the, the energy security aspect of wind and solar is totally overblown because it's, it has nothing to do with oil, which has been our energy insecurity, uh, our energy security bugaboo meaning that we, we've been importing a bunch of oil the past 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, that's where our ener energy insecurity comes from, is the oil sector, the transportation sector. And like I say, that's been reduced thanks to the shale boom. Um, so when you, when you see these commercials, wind and solar or flat American flags and all these different things, it's a little bit of a fake advertisement because wind and solar are su supply electricity and our electricity system is very energy secure because we produce our own oil, uh, coal and natural gas. If you, can under, if you understood what I, what I mean. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's just so much propaganda of this kind. I mean, I, I, I think you're being too charitable toward the so-called renewables and renewables is a complete package deal of hydro, which is a real source of energy and solar and wind, which are energy parasites. I mean, it's, it, they're supplemental in a certain sense, uh, but really the, they're parasitical because um, you can't rely on them. So yeah, they'll occasionally, it's kind of like, you know, somebody is sponging off you and then he occasionally does a little work. Uh, yeah. Well, okay, but he's still a sponge. He's still a parasite. <laughs> you don't need him. You can kick him out of the house and you'd be better off and things would run more smoothly. So, you know, if we didn't, if all the solar and wind disappeared, I use this line a lot, and if all the solar and wind shut down tomorrow, uh, you know, leaving aside off-grid things, we'd be fine. You'd be, you'd have a more stable grid. If you yeah. lost 10% of your uh, oil supply, you would have chaos. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's really amazing how valuable these are, and I think exciting that we can produce more and more of them. And, and let's, let's then talk about natural gas, which is obviously a very interesting and versatile fuel. So what, where are we in terms of potential supplies of natural gas that we can harness? Well, the estimates vary on this as well, but we know that we now have about 350 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, 355 I think it is, TCF of natural gas, which is the highest it's ever been. It's totally boomed in the past seven years because of the shale, the shale revolution. And that compares to about, I think about 200 or so back in the year 2000. So we've gone up 70, 80% in natural gas reserves, which again is just simply what we can get today um, given current prices and given uh, current technologies. This is according to BP, which is where I use for reserve information, uh, BP. So the idea of resources comes in, the, the, the company definitely to refer on this is the USGS, they have conventional gas, which is in the trillion, which is in the high TCA, high trillion cubic feet. I think it's even in over a thousand trillion cubic feet for the resource, just for the convention, unconventional supply. Um, and the, the unconventional supply is very accessible because 30 to 40 years ago, which is always, it's always changing. In other words, the, the definition of unconventional is tricky for some people. But basically what it means is 30 to 40 years ago, offshore was unconventional. It's now very conventional production. Shale gas is becoming more conventional. Shale gas is, is technically an unconventional resource, an unconventional way of getting natural gas out of the ground.
But as we evolve and the technologies evolved, as the companies learn with practice, learn by doing, uh, learning by doing, it, it becomes more conventional. So you'll see this a lot. It's an unconventional resource, unconventional resource. That changes over time as companies get better. So we are now seeing uh, shale gas become more, more of a conventional resource. In there, I would have to say, like I say, we have about 350 TCF of proven gas. The USGS has us somewhere in the thousands of trillion cubic feet for conventional and unconventional uh, supply combined. So you're talking decades, uh, if not centuries, of oil and gas that we have. So to get off fossil fuels, the idea that, that we need to get off fossil fuels because we're running out is, is an absolute falsehood. So they, 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 this was the push 10 years ago. It didn't work. So now they're going to get off fossil fuels because uh, we're getting too many hurricanes, which isn't true, by the way. Um, that there's too many storms. There's too many snowstorms, too many droughts. All, all they're saying about the, the global warming and climate change is now why we should get off fossil fuels. But 10 years ago, the push was because we were running out. Even the, our, the U.S. military had uh, peak oil as our biggest problem back in 2010 and said we'd, we'd see enormous shortfalls in five years. This is the U.S. military now who's, who doesn't have respect for them, who doesn't love them, best experts around, saying we're going to face oil shortfalls in, shortfalls in five years when we now have more supply than we've ever had. That's why prices, prices have plummeted. Uh, so these things are always changing, but the, the, the amount of natural gas we have now available to us down the road, it will be, is in the hundreds of years. I just want to say about this storms issue. Uh, if you think about this from a human perspective, this is bizarre because what fossil fuels enable us to do is protect ourselves from nearly any storm. So the, one way to think of it is, fossil fuels make 10 storms now less dangerous than one storm used to be. Absolutely. So if you talk about, oh, the number of storms is up by 0.5%, let's throw away fossil fuels. You know, that's like saying, well, I don't know, the number of microbial diseases is up 0.5%, so let's, and, and you could somehow attribute that to antibiotics. I don't know, and, but then it cures them all. It's, it's, it's just such a, it's such a, it, it's so, I mean, my whole, uh, my fundamental issue with the whole way we think about energy is that we don't think about it from a, a human uh, perspective. We don't value it, the value it provides to humans. And we think of its risks and side effects, not really in terms of human well-being, although there's often that kind of rationalization, but they don't look into the data and say, well, how much does this really matter for humans? They just think of it in terms of, well, it's wrong for us to impact anything. And, you know, it's so non-human nature is what matter and what matters and really fundamentally humans don't matter so just from a practical perspective the idea that oh we're being overwhelmed by storms go 200 years ago and you'll, you would see what it's like to be overwhelmed by a storm or go to a third world country and see what a conventional storm can do to a village oh absolutely this is something you talk about and you talk about in your work all the time is what's the ex extreme weather deaths are down 99% in the world since 1920? Yeah. No, so, yeah. right? 98. I mean, ni yeah, 98, but yeah, it's, it's these huge, yeah, these, which these astonishing, so that just means that, that, that uh, extreme weather is, extreme weather related danger is one of the things fossil fuels is especially good at improving. Oh, ab absolutely. And you see this, I, I did a graph on this, uh, I think about a year ago was that there's, a, there's about 450 people killed in the United States every year because of extreme weather, 450. And there's about 130 people killed from, uh, in a car accident that's caused by a deer, okay? So, so that's, that's the parallel. And there's 40,000 Americans die in car accidents. So there's 450, 50, 450 people die from extreme weather, 40,000 in car accidents, it's about 40,000 as well in suicides. So you would think that there's all these people that are dying, and that's just here in the United States, and as you say, in the third world, the developing world, I should say, because that, that's not the, the right term. The developing world these, the, is much worse because they don't have these fuels. So they don't have a way of protecting themselves of, 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 of uh, proper shelter and things like that. So absolutely, that's another benefit of fossil fuels that gets completely ignored. It's built... The, 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 the West, when the 
West has the, the best living standards in the world. I just had a thought that is pretty scary and it would be hard to exactly validate, but I would not be at all surprised uh, if it's true. And this, this goes to your numbers. I've mentioned uh, 450 climate related deaths in the United States. And then what was it? Uh, 30 or 40,000 suicides. Somewhere, it's like 35, 40,000, somewhere in that area. I mean, so if we, we look at the nature of suicide, I mean, this is somebody who's, who's beyond depressed, who believes that there's, that, you know, whatever he would want in life is, is unattainable, that, that things are hopeless. And if we figure out what, culturally, what is the number one thing we are, are told to have a doomsday view of, I think it's this issue. And there are documented stories of people killing themselves and even their families over this issue, over the idea that we're ruining the planet. And you get kids, you know, I, I think in uh, both of our generations brought up to say we're ruining the planet. Now, if you tell someone over and over and over, and this came up on, when I was on Stephen Molyneux's uh, podcast and, and, and uh, YouTube videos, you know, this has a detrimental effect on people's, on people's psychology. And so, you know, I, I don't know how you would do it, but if you went to those people, I'll bet a significant number of them were this this kind of doomsday thing, this fundamental guilt that everyone is inculcated with contributed. So it is possible that here are other places that there are more suicide related climate climate catastrophe suicide deaths than actual climate related deaths. Oh yeah, and and I think part of it, the, the number that I always I, I repeat a lot of the, the the numbers because they're just so astounding, and I think people just don't. You know, there's the what do they say? There's three types of lies, uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics. But the statistics are overwhelming, and they cannot be ignored. And one of the biggest ones that I stress is this: twenty thousand children die every day from poverty, and that is called preventable poverty by the UN. So twenty thousand kids dying every day from preventable poverty. I would argue the biggest problem that they, that the biggest solution to that problem is the, the, that they don't have enough energy because energy is it runs everything it runs our entire world for us here in the, in the west the other countries the developing countries don't have enough of it and you have to remember the original un conference came out in 1972 i wrote i wrote a forbes article about this and it was called it, it was about the environment is people in in their need for more energy that's my title so it was all about people. The, the environment is two things, Alex. It's rivers, it's streams, it's the air, but it's also people. The, 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 people side, the people side of the equation for the environment is getting completely forgotten. And we're pushing these poor countries. My goodness, in, in India, there's 750 million people that don't have a refrigerator. And we're telling them that they can't use coal when coal is 50% of their energy? The energy supply in 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 in, uh, in India, and there's 750 million people that don't have a refrigerator. 310 million have no electricity, and we're blocking coal plants from them. I mean, that to me is the ultimate in uh, not just hypocrisy and, and being dangerous, but that is the anti-humanity movement that's occurring is blocking energy from poor people. And I don't, I don't care how long it takes, and I, I'm sure you're doing the same. I know you're doing the same thing because I, I read your stuff all the time. A lot of people aren't doing this, what me, what me and you do. We're pretty unique, and a lot of the companies that, that sell these the great products are caving to the environmental industry who, who will never love them, who never like them. And this idea that the environment is people also, it's not just rivers and mountains and streams, it's people. The people side of that has been completely forgotten. Yeah, I think one of the things I, I picked up on when I read your work was just that it was it was so human focused, which is just just rare. And it's <laughs> but that's the, the only moral way of doing it. But you just always take it back to, OK, but what about what this will do to people? And uh, I've heard it put that we you know, as a culture, we're obsessed. The numbers we're obsessed with our CO2 emissions when they should be life expectancy numbers. And that's, that's what's not happening. And that's uh, what I appreciate about your work. One more question, one more question before we wrap up, you mentioned us energy poverty. Could you, and, and poverty more broadly, could you talk a little bit about that and, and what can be done to address it? 
Okay. Um, well, again, these, these are numbers. I was a statistician uh, major. So you look at right now, we have the highest amount of people, Americans in poverty in the history of the country. We're now at about 48 million. So 48 million Americans in poverty. There are about, and you see this not working, 93 million Americans of working age not working. 55 million of them are women. So that's the real war on women is that the women out there can't find jobs. So that's a huge problem. Just some of these numbers, and a lot of it comes from higher, the higher cost energy. Our electricity prices have gone up, and there's now a program called LIHEAP, which is the Low um, Income Energy Assistance Program, which is a federal program to basically help people, their, help Americans pay their electricity bills. And there are about 110 million Americans eligible for that program. That's more than a third of the country that are eligible for the federal government to help them. Only about 10% get that help. So this is a big deal. And there's a, a, a guy uh, named Mark Wolf who runs, I think it's called the American, um, I can't remember the exact agency, but he, he talks about how different, he runs one of these agencies that helps elderly people basically pay their bills and reports on their problems. He talks about people do die. They turn down the heat. On, uh, when their electricity prices get too high, you're seeing this all over Europe, uh, that, that their electricity prices are 40 cents over there. Ours are only 12. So we have to be very careful in raising electricity prices because it hurts older people. It hurts, uh, it hurts the minorities because they generally have lower incomes. So th this is a big deal. And part of the aspect of that comes right back to your energy uh, liberation plan is producing as much energy as possible to help with the lower prices, to have as much energy as we can. And there, there is now a, 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 a paradigm being installed in the United States, an energy paradigm by, uh, I would argue, the Obama administration and some of the Democrats, they are, they are, that higher cost energy is better because it, it causes people to use less and to reduce, and it, it means it reduces emissions. Now, President Obama said he was going to bankrupt the coal industry back in 2007 or 2008 when he was a senator running for president, if you remember, and that's exactly what he's doing. So it's, that's the exact opposite, because Americans need money for health. That's just the fundamental bottom line of it. So we have to get, poverty is taking a back seat on uh, not just the United States, but globally to, to reducing emissions. Poverty is taking a back, back seat. When you look at the speeches given in Africa from, from majorly important global leaders, they don't even mention electricity. They don't even mention power in a land where 650 million people have no electricity. But they'll mention climate change five, ten times, but they will not mention electricity, the, the, the desperate need for electricity in, in these places. And um, the, the, our poverty is getting worse. Our air is much cleaner than it's ever been. And poverty is taking a back seat to all this here and abroad. Well, the best way to have low emissions is, besides dying, is to be poor. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't that's think they're, exactly they're, right. they're not disconnected. The it's, it's not, you know, these people in you know, North Korea is a global leader in keeping emissions low. Because emissions are emissions from productivity. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, every hour in North Korea is Earth hour. So yeah, have you ever seen that map, Alex, of... You should, there's a great map, I'm sure you've probably ran across it, of comparing South Korea, which, which were my brother, I have four adopted brothers and sisters from Seoul, next to North Korea at, at night. Yeah, and you yeah, can yeah. see we, this amazing, amazing picture. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, I have a little graphic of it that was made by someone on our I Love Fossil Fuels Facebook page, which just, it has uh, North Korea says without fossil fuels and South Korea says with fossil fuels. Yeah. In the North Koreans are actually shorter than the South Koreans, and there's like all sort of, they have a lower life expectancy, stuff like that, because I would argue they don't have enough electricity, which runs everything. And the last thing that I'll say is, is basically the importance of electricity is, is, is becoming more, it's becoming more important in the digital age. So these countries that don't have it, these regions that don't have enough electricity are falling further behind. So we're, we're running ahead, Germany, the US, France, UK, we're surging ahead while these countries that don't have it are falling even more behind us. That's why this idea of blocking energy, any sort of energy. I mean, we've got to be pro, pro, any, pro everything. I mean, renewables have, have limitations that are being 
ignored. That's my problem. We, we should be pro, pro everything. We need, we're going to need it all. And these countries that, that have so little are, 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 gonna, are falling even further behind and shame on the people for blocking their options, especially when they themselves devour those options. Um, Al Gore living in a mansion by you there in Santa Barbara, telling people, flying the world, telling people not to do what he does. Again, they're not listening to us. Just, he has a mansion in Santa Barbara, too. Oh, yeah. $9 million. Look it up. Oh, I should go visit. And maybe, I've never I, been up there. Visit I was, with a camera crew and do a little impromptu yeah, no debate. But th th that, that's the other thing about the environmental movement. they got to get rid of these hypocrites because the people, the average people are not listening to that. They, they despise hypocrisy. We all do. Whether it's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, whether it's uh, Al Gore, whether it's even Bloomberg, who is better than, than those two, but he, he's a bit of a hypocrite himself. These people that devour energy and tell others not to do the same is hurting the environmental movement. I mean, well, we're all good. environmental. I regard this, yeah, that's good. I, I would recommend that they consume conspicuously and abandon their agenda. That, I think that would be the best way to resolve yeah. the hypocrisy. I definitely don't want them. You know, Al Gore moves into a teepee. What good does it do? It's a little more energy for the rest of us, but he still has the he still has the bad uh, ideology. So anything that that makes that the anti-human movement more uh, more successful, I'm against. And and hypocrisy, you know, hypocrisy involves two contradictory approaches, and and you don't want to endorse uh, the wrong approach. So the fact that he's not living up to his ideal in this case is that's a that's the virtuous part. The vicious part yeah. is his ideal. That's true. Um, okay, Jude. Well, thanks so much for being on the program. Where can people learn more about you? Um, if you go to Twitter, uh, like I guess, like you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a Jude Clemente. Uh, if you just Google my name, um, you can find a lot of my work. And I'm on Forbes. I used to have my own energy blog, but I was getting more traffic on Forbes, so I'm doing much more work on Forbes now. I try to put out an article or two a week. Um, so I have, I'm closing on 60 articles for Forbes. You can read my stuff on there. And um, that's it. We just got to continue to fight and hopefully these companies wake up and realize the important work that me and Alex are doing and other people, not just me, the two of us. That's, uh, but we are a little bit of a voice in the, uh, in the wilderness, Alex, even, even I'm sure you know that. Yeah, I mean, I, what I would encourage them to do, and I, I, I have no complaints with the companies in terms of their actions toward, uh, toward me, although I, I think it, it would be really good just to get more books in the hands of their staff. I think that would do them a lot of good, help create a lot of energy champions. But it's also, you know, when they're communicating, they need to use a lot more of this messaging. They need yeah. to, because, because if, if only outsiders are pointing out the virtue of what they do and the value of their products, and they are contradicting that or, or even failing to affirm it, it undercuts the case of the people who advocate low-cost uh, energy. Because if that if the producers don't advocate it, then it seems like they have something to hide. Then the outsiders lose uh, credibility. But I do, I've been seeing progress. So uh, I want to keep prodding people. But I, in, even in the history of this show, this, this Power Hour has been around, I guess, let me think, almost four years. No, wow, five years now. It's been a while. It's, it's gotten a lot better. So uh, I, I want to applaud those in the industry who are doing a better job. But if you look at the the landscape that we face, you, we really need a much, a much more aggressive, uh, moral, intellectual, PR media effort. And well, stay tuned, everyone. The energy plan will be out soon, and you'll at least see my plan for fixing all of this and uh, getting some better ideas uh, in the 2016 election. So, Jude, thanks so much for your help, and we will talk soon. Okay, thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Jude Clemente for coming on the show and sharing all of his research and knowledge. I shouldn't say all of it, but uh, a lot of it, and we'll link to his Forbes column and his Twitter feed where you can learn more. Uh, in terms of, of takeaways, I think we covered most of what I wanted to. I'll just say that I am hard at work on my energy plan still doesn't have an official public name, but we're putting together a really cool team of people to work on it. So have high expectations that we can actually impact the 2016 election. So make sure that you go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for the newsletter so you are on that. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. 
follow us on Facebook or Twitter. You can follow the Alex Epstein account, the Industrial Progress account, the I Love Fossil Fuels account, or and or the I Love Nuclear account. Next week, we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.